Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to be talking about what's been happening this week, all the announcements from investment trust sector, and a quick look at, to start with at the uh, markets and what they have been doing, Simon. Well, obviously, it's another short week. So we're looking here at the performance for the first three days of the week. And in that time, the investment company sector was down about 0.9%. And that represented an underperformance of the wider UK market. So the FTSE All Share up 0.3% for those first three working days, trading days. The sector average discount, that was probably unchanged, actually, at 3.7%. But it's just worth reminding everybody that so far, year to date, the investment company sector finds itself very much in negative territory down uh, just over 10%. And that compares to a rise of 2% for the wider UK market. Although I think as we've discussed before, that decline has really been driven by some of the higher growth names uh, in the sector. So names such as Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, probably down about 30% in share price terms year to date. Polar Cap, Smithson, both down about 23%. Monks, not dissimilar decline. So that's really what's pulling the index down. But in terms of uh, the developments this week across the marketplace, obviously a lot of focus still on inflation, discussion that the US Federal Reserve may consider front-loading their interest rate hikes. So what does that mean? Well, the speculation is that they will look to increase uh, interest rates by 50 basis points over their next three meetings as a way of tackling high inflation. And certainly, the kind of macro backdrop doesn't look particularly enticing at the moment. Uh, it's fair to say I think the markets probably finds itself a little bit gloomy. I mean, we've had stories this week that China's economic growth has slowed as a result of the COVID lockdowns there. The World Bank has downgraded global growth for its forecast from about 4.1% to 3.2%. The IMF has described spiralling inflation as a clear and present danger. And we're seeing UK consumer confidence levels drop to the lowest point since 2008. But away from that, it's always interesting to look at results. And we've seen some very kind of bellwether stocks report their earnings to the market. And just to pick out a couple, we saw Tesla announce an 81% jump in its quarterly sales. So quite a spectacular growth there for that company. In comparison, Netflix, for the first time, announced that actually it was losing subscribers, and that resulted in a 40% decline in its share price, which just goes to show with these high-growth companies, when they stop growing, uh, there can be quite a dramatic uh, reversal in the share price. Indeed. I think at one point, though, we might just make about the uh, performance of the investment trust sector. You mentioned the big growth names that have taken a hit, and they are the dominant members of the investment companies index that we follow. The index itself only measures those uh, investment trusts which are in the FTSE indices. I think I'm right about that. And is it worth making the point that actually what we've also seen this year has been a, a significant decline in the value of sterling against the dollar? So to some extent, some of those losses that you might have made on the bigger investment trusts will have been slightly ameliorated if they were dollar denominated. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, the investment companies sector overall will have a bias to overseas and not just the US, clearly, but that will be a large part of it. So yes, that dollar strength really versus possible sterling weakness has, has certainly helped overall. 
Okay, so let's uh, move on. Well, let's just pick up on one of the company results that uh, you talked about coming out this week, Netflix and uh, Tesla. But let's just talk about uh, Netflix and what it actually means for one of the big investment trusts, which is Pershing Square Holdings, which uh, only recently acquired a stake in Netflix. Uh, that was back in January. But it appears that they've uh, changed their mind. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so Bill Ackman, who is the man behind Pershing Square Holdings, wrote a public letter to investors and shareholders this week, basically explaining that they'd sold the position in Netflix, which, as you said, was only purchased early in the year, um, and just given some of the reasoning behind that. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, obviously, Netflix was hit very hard on the fact that it lost its subscribers. But actually, year to date, it is in quite significant uh, negative territory. It's not just that recent fall. So Bill Ackman's letter, um, I thought was uh, very good in explaining the position that he, he said that they still have a high regard for Netflix management and what they've built over a relatively short period of time. However, they had developed kind of concerns over the, the company's future subscriber growth and also therefore impacted on the Pershing Square team's estimate of its intrinsic value. So to surmise, the investment case had changed. And it wasn't just that they'd lost a few subscribers at that period. It was the fact that they were looking to change their business model that I think had uh, kind of set up the red flags for Pershing Square. So they've decided to walk away. Now, I think why is that significant? Well, obviously, and unsurprisingly, it's had a bit of a hit on Pershing Square's performance. But I mean, not to get too dramatic about that. I think they were talking about four percentage points. I mean, Pershing Square Holdings is a significantly large vehicle. But I think also, and, and some of the media commentary around this have made this point as well, that it perhaps signifies that people do learn from their mistakes. And, and without kind of going into a history lesson here, Bill Ackman has had his ups and downs in his investment career. He's had some clearly very, very successful investments, but also he's had those that have hurt his performance record and Valiant and Herbalife would be the two that spring to mind. But in this particular instance, despite the fact that it's a relatively short time period, the fact that the, the investment case has changed for Netflix as far as Pershing Square is concerned, that they were quite happy to cut their losses and walk away. Yes, I think that's a very important point. Uh, one of the things that Netflix said as well was, as you say, they're changing their business model and they're going to be taking advertising. One of the great attractions of the streaming services has been that you don't uh, get interrupted by lots of ads, which has always been the problem with pay TV. So that is a significant change in their business model. We don't know how long that's going to take to be implemented. They were talking about 18 months or two years or something like of that order. Uh, but it is a big change. But I think the point you make is the ability to you know, cut your losses. They always say the first cut is the hardest, but is also the, the wisest one to make. If there's bad news, which you're not expecting, it's often the best thing to do is just to sell immediately, cut your losses, as you say, and then you can review the situation later without having to spend months worrying about it. And that is, uh, I think, a lesson for all investors, not just for large ones. However, having said that, You've got to be quite a wealthy guy to be able to invest over a billion dollars in something and then lose 400 million of it three months later <laughs> and uh, without batting an eyelid. I mean, that just tells you the kind of league in which uh, he's operating at least. But also a reminder that, you know, even the smartest or what are deemed to be the smartest investors uh, do make mistakes. They make big mistakes. And if you run a concentrated portfolio like uh, Pershing Square Holdings does, you've got big, chunky holdings. If they go wrong, then you really do get a big it. So I think that's an interesting story all around. So what's happened to the share price of uh, Pershing Square Holdings? Well, it was unsurprising. It was off a little. But I mean, year to date, the share price is down about 4%. So certainly not a disastrous return by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, the, 
the fund's NAV has been pushing up in recent months. Um, it's also worth noting with Pershing Square Holdings as well, it still trades on a significant discount. I've got it on about a 30, 34% discount at the moment. And that's despite the fact that it's got a market cap of 5.8 billion in sterling terms. So this is a very, very large fund on a significant discount. And it's not too often you can say that. Uh, indeed. Uh, but I suppose the question is, I mean, the board have been talking about taking a number of measures to try and narrow the discount. Do you think this uh, latest news is going to, it's not going to help that process, is it? I mean, I think the comments you made earlier were absolutely appropriate. I mean, this is a very concentrated investment portfolio. There are going to be instances where things won't work out and instances where there's an awful lot of money to be made. So it's going to be swings and roundabouts. This is for people who are looking for just general exposure to the US market, say, you know, this is not the vehicle for them. You've got to kind of buy into the fact that Bill Ackman and his team of investment professionals know what they're doing and and kind of have an edge on the marketplace. I mean, in terms of the discount, I mean, I think a lot of that reflects the history of this particular vehicle since it came to the marketplace. I mean, as I mentioned, it had there have been some ups and downs. And the fact also that Bill Ackman himself has a significant personal holding in, in this fund as well, which probably acts as a block to any kind of more activist investor seeking to kind of drive that discount in. But I'm sure the board of Pershing Square will be very, very aware of the level at which they trade at. Indeed. Okay, so we'll move on now and talk about another bit of corporate news, which is Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, ticker AEET. And this was an interesting one, I thought, for a number of reasons. But uh, tell us what this particular trust has had to say. Well, I'll just remind people of the, the situation that initially developed back in January, or actually to remind people that this was an IPO in June of last year. It raised uh, £100 million at that stage. At the end of January this year, uh, we saw two of the four non-executive directors resign. So there's only two non-executive directors remaining at the moment. And those resignations were a result of apparently a difference of opinion read the speed of deployment. So obviously, as with any new investment company, uh, there's that kind of initial investment phase. uh, But apparently in this case, uh, it had been slower than planned. The remaining two directors initiated a review and we found out the result of that investment strategy review this week. And there's a few points to note here. So the board uh, have brought in a third party consultant called Complete Strategy. uh, And they've also consulted their leading shareholders, as one would expect. Basically, the conclusion was that the strategy that the fund was pursuing and the market opportunity for energy efficiency remains attractive, but they have proposed the following changes. So basically, the continuation resolution, uh, which was scheduled for 2025, has now been brought forward, or the proposal is that it be brought forward to February 2023, so in under a year. Uh, And also, if deployment does not improve materially over the next three months, the board will consider bringing that date forward again. So there's very much an onus on the investment team here to get a move on. They've changed the investment advisory fee. So that will only be charged on committed capital now rather than the NAV. So what does that mean? Is that the investment managers or the investment team don't get paid for sitting on cash. And actually, that amendment will be applied retrospectively from the time of the IPO. So that's quite a rebasement of the uh, management fee. The investment advisor themselves, they're going to uh, bolster their dedicated team with new members to assist with uh, the deployment. And there's this idea that the board, with the help of this third party consultant, will really be monitoring the deployment levels very, very carefully 
I mean, the target is still to get this thing fully invested by the end of this year. And the cost of that third-party consultant, interestingly enough, are going to be borne by the investment advisor. The board is looking to recruit additional directors to have two non-executive directors. is a pretty rare situation, obviously not ideal, so they're looking to address that. But there's still a lot of work to be done here. The updated figures are that they've committed about 23 million euros to date, of which 18 million has been deployed. Bear in mind, they raised 100 million sterling uh, in June last year. So unsurprisingly, perhaps, that the 3.5p target dividend that was meant to be paid for this year will not be covered by earnings. And actually, they're going to review that. One suspects that that may not happen, or certainly not to that level. But yeah, a lot of work to be done here. And it was interesting when this blew up in the first place, We wondered what shareholders' opinion would be. It's a relatively concentrated shareholder base. Probably three or four shareholders account for over half the shares in issue. Yeah, well, there's lots of elements there, and it's all very interesting and also slightly unusual. I mean, on the the plus side, I guess we could say that the board is beginning to uh, take action about this slow deployment, uh, even though it's lost two of its members along the way. And they've effectively given the managers something of a slap over the wrist, I guess, by saying uh, we're going to backdate the change in the fee. You can't earn fee for just sitting on the cash and so on. And you've got to get a move on. So basically, they have given, as I say, a bit of a talking to to the managers. But uh, why has it taken so long? Well, we have, the one thing we don't seem to have heard from is from you know the management team, Aquila. What, why has it taken so long for them to uh, uh, commit this money? And does that in turn raise the question whether they actually came to the market too quickly if they weren't actually in a position to put their kind of cash to work in a reasonable time frame? That might suggest that they uh, they were a little bit premature in coming to market. Yeah, and these are good points. And we don't know is the short answer. I mean, I can tell you at launch, there was talk of a pipeline valued at 210 million euros Um, And apparently that consisted of 60 assets. I'm not sure what happened to that. And I think the other point is worth noting that, again, at launch, this vehicle was targeting net returns of between seven and a half and nine and a half percent per annum, which, uh, as you will know, Jonathan, is quite a punchy target. I mean, certainly its closest peers, I think their targets are between about seven and eight percent. And one wonders whether the opportunity set was that great in the area in order to justify those kind of returns. But the long and the short of it is they just have struggled clearly to get their money to work. I mean, they've made a few investments on Italian rooftop solar panel projects and there's a re- residential energy efficiency scheme, I think, also in Italy. But essentially, they have struggled to get this money to work. Yes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, on the face of it, energy efficiency could be a potentially rewarding uh, uh, activity, particularly in the current uh, climate where we're all focused on climate change to various degrees and ESG. I think there are three. Are there three other energy efficiency trusts out there? I think there's three, maybe maybe more. I don't know. Other trusts may invest in these kind of projects as well. But uh, they have very different experiences, don't they? I mean, uh, two of them are quite small, as far as I can see, and the other one, which is SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, is is trading on a big premium, while the others are trading on a discount. So obviously, there are good returns to be made here, but uh, but not by everyone. You're absolutely right. There are three funds in that particular subsector. Um, An SDCL energy efficiency income has been around uh, the longest, and it's by far the largest, 1.2 billion market cap uh, with a historic yield of about 4.6%. And as you mentioned, trading on quite a significant premium, probably about 19% at the moment. So they've been around a number of years. I mean, they've got involved in uh, a number of different kind of projects and things, LED lighting uh, installations, heat pumps, and solar as well. Uh, triple point energy efficiency infrastructure, that's a more recent arrival. 
that's on a little bit of a discount, 4% or so at the moment. I've got a market cap just below £90 million as well. So, you know, we've talked about this a number of times before in general, you know, to have a good investment case and all the rest of it is all well and good, but you've got to be able to deploy that cash in a relatively short time frame, which is why at launch people often look for, you know, target portfolios or pipelines. And, uh, you know, most investment companies will give quite firm guidance of how long they would take to deploy their capital, because obviously it does have repercussions in terms of, you know, dividend targets and all the rest of it. As I said earlier, it's not entirely clear what's happened in the case of Aquila, but that pipeline, that 210 million euro pipeline um, seems to have disappeared. Indeed. So what do you think? uh, We'll find out, of course, but I just wonder what you think. What would the kind of major shareholders be thinking here? Will they be thinking, okay, this is perhaps another case where we might just cut our losses, as it were, you know, close the thing down and uh, get our money back? Or do you think they'll be saying, well, if the manager doesn't come up with a credible case of speeding things up without actually jeopardizing the returns they're targeting, then uh, we might uh, encourage them to go on? How would you think they might be thinking on this one? Well, I, I suspect it's a, it'd be very much a case of a yellow card and, and keep this on a very close watch, particularly over the next six to nine months, because it's obviously not just about deploying the capital from here on in. It's about ensuring that they buy decent quality assets, because if they just kind of throw their money across the marketplace, then you're just shoring up trouble uh, in time to come. So I suspect the leading investors will be watching this one very, very carefully. I mean, the fact that it hasn't delivered so far is reflected in the fact it's on a 20% discount. And one wonders if that dividend, that 3.5p target dividend doesn't happen this year, which would seem to be the way that it's heading, You know how the dividends might look on this one going forward. And I think that will be quite important as well. Just finally on this one, I mean, Aquila has another investment trust in the renewable energy sector, uh, which has been around a bit longer and has, has seems to be doing okay. Has there been any kind of knock-on effect on that, do you think? No, not really, I think is probably the honest answer. I mean, that's trading around NEV, probably on a small premium or so. It's got a market cap in sterling terms, probably about £350 million pounds or so. And it's, you know, as you mentioned, it's been around a, a, a little while now and it's uh, got a dividend yield on a historic basis of about 5%. So there doesn't seem to be any kind of contagion across this one. I think that most people are looking at Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust is very much on a separate case. Very good. Well, that is interesting uh, development, certainly. Uh, let's move on. We'll talk about another uh, energy trust later on, but uh, let's move on and talk about some UK results now. And let's try Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies, uh, ticker IPU. And they've had some annual results for the year to the 31st of January. That's right, a decent set of results. Their NAV total return was up just short of 19% in that year, and that compared with a rise of about 15% or so for their benchmark. In share price terms, actually even stronger, up nearly 22%. So it's worth noting that this particular investment trust pays an enhanced dividend, by which I mean a dividend that is partially funded from capital. So the total dividend in respect to the year is 22.8p. That's equivalent to a yield of 4% of the year-end share price. And that's how this particular board sets the dividend. They literally get to that 31st of January point, calculate 4% of the share price, and ensure that the final dividend brings the total dividend for the year up to that point. Now, that 22.8p, that was partially funded by 14.5p of capital profits. But the uh, investment team here, Jonathan Brown and Robin West, very experienced investors based down in Henley for Invesco. They had a number of uh, kind of winners in the year. So future alpha financial markets, consulting and volution. And they also benefited from 
uh, a number of takeover bids. Uh, obviously, there were some detractors as well, James Fisher, RWS, and Aptitude Software. But it's very much um, a kind of quality growth approach, about 70, 75 holdings or so. They're actually looking to change the benchmark on this one. They want to include AIM as well. And apparently about 30% of the portfolio is exposed to AIM traded companies. So that would seem to make good sense. Yeah, always raise a slight query eyebrow when people change their benchmark. But it is certainly something that some of the other smaller company trusts, UK smaller company trusts have done, I think, to include AIM, where they've been some very good returns to be had, at least uh, historically. So this one, I mean, the, the UK smaller companies is a very interesting sector. It's quite a large sector, and there's some very good trusts in there. But the kind of ratings on them are all over the place, aren't they? I mean, they've obviously sold off quite a lot of them this year. How is this one doing compared to the general peer group? Yeah, I've got it on about a 13% discount or so. That compares with the average for its peer group on a market cap weighted basis, probably about 10% or so, so a little bit wider. But you're right, it has been derated. It's probably averaged a discount of about 10% over the previous 12 months. But I mean, in general, those investment trusts focused on smaller companies have been derated this year. This is not just a UK story. You can see it in the US, in Asia, and all the way around the world, frankly. And it's easy to understand the reasons why that might be the case, given what we're talking about in terms of economic uncertainty at the, the top of the podcast. But Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies has been one of those few UK smaller companies focused investment trusts that has kind of sought to address the issue of its discount. So a number of years ago, uh, it had a liquidity event, and then it was an early adopter of the enhanced dividend, uh, which did work in terms of it did see a re-rating on the back of that. Unfortunately, if we go back to 2020, at the kind of peak of the pandemic, it decided to take a step back at that stage away from its enhanced dividend and was derated partially as a result of that. They have now restored that enhanced dividend policy, but as yet, it still remains on that wide discount. And in terms of just of performance over the last you know, one or three years, that sort of thing, how has this one done compared to the, to the peer group? Yeah, it's got a pretty solid record. So, well, if you look at it on an NAV performance uh, total return five years, it's up 47%. That compares with its benchmark up 23%, so significant outperformance. And if you look at its numbers, um, certainly over kind of three and five year numbers, it's probably not dissimilar to like a Henderson Smaller Companies um, funds of that ilk. I'm just trying to look where the BlackRock funds are there. They tend to be quite a high profile in this space. So BlackRock Throgmorton Trust, up 64% over that five-year period. BlackRock Smaller Companies up 53%. And Harry Nemo's Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies growth, that's up 62%. So it would certainly be behind those more higher growth names. But the fund that actually has performed the strongest over that five-year period in this subsector is Georgina Britain's JP Morgan UK Smaller Companies fund. That's up 89% over that five-year period in NAV terms. And that one's still trading on a double-digit discount as well, which is interesting. So there's certainly a, a kind of a wide range of uh, opportunities in this sector, shall we say. Some of them have gearing, of course, which magnifies the uh, decline when there is a decline in the NAV. Uh, but it's always an interesting sector. And uh, uh, for the long term, some of them will produce some excellent results. But uh, this has not been a good period for them on the whole. Uh, let's talk about overseas results now. Let's move on and talk about Asia Dragon, ticker DGN which is, as I recall, is a Aberdeen Trust. It is indeed an Aberdeen Trust. And these were interim results for the six months ended 28th of February. In that time, well, it's obviously been a more difficult time for Asian equities. Their NAV total return was down 7.7% in that six-month period. That compares with a decline of 8.1% for the MSCI or country Asia-Pacific ex-Japan index. 
In share price terms, well, not quite as bad. It was down about 6.3% as the discount narrowed in a little bit. So what happened here? Well, they actually outperformed as a result of their positioning on China. Um, so they had a number of Chinese companies that worked quite well for them in that time period. In fact, the manager, uh, Adrian Lim, long-standing manager of this one based out in Singapore, he remains convinced of China's long-term structural growth prospects and actually has made a number of additions in this period, uh, including an electric vehicle battery maker in China and also uh, another company in the industrial automation sector. Also been exposed in the portfolio to more cyclical stocks and also the Indian digital sector as well. So being quite busy in terms of portfolio activity. But the, the kind of Aberdeen approach to Asian equities, very much that kind of quality growth, always keep an eye on valuations, the portfolio just short of 70 odd holdings at the end of February, and actually gearing at that stage stood just below 10%. Okay, well, not directly comparable, but not completely uncomparable either is Fidelity Asian Values, the next one, ticker FAS. Uh, they've had interim results, but this is for a slightly different six month period, and they are more of a small cap buyers trust. So what uh, what have they had to uh, say? How did they do in that period? Yeah, so for the six-month period to the end of January, the NAV was up 2.2%. That compared with a decline of 1% for the MSCI or country Asia ex-Japan small cap index. And in share price terms, uh, they saw a decline of about 1.1%. So as you say, it's very much kind of mid and small cap names. Uh, it's very stock specific. So the names that worked for them in general tended to be those uh, in the Indian market, if I had to kind of generalize. Conversely, the detractors, funnily enough, were actually more Chinese in origin. Um, but I think probably the kind of key takeaway from this set of results was the fact that actually gearing is being utilized on a net basis for the first time in seven years. And that's a reflection of the manager's view of in terms of the opportunity set that he's seeing at the moment. So the manager here is uh, Nitin Baja of Fidelity. He's been running this portfolio for the best part of seven years or so. But um, again, he talked about the opportunities that he's seen in China. Uh, and also he's taken advantage of some of those names that he's uh, have been sold off unjustifiably in anticipation of an inflation shock. So he talked about HDFC Bank as an example of that. Okay. And so, as you said, Asia generally has been a little bit out of favour in recent times. Well, quite a long time, actually. But these two are both trading around their normal discounts. What's happening in this particular sector? So uh, Fidelity Asian Values, we've kind of got it in the Asia-Pacific smaller company subsector. So I've got that on a discount of between about 9 and 10%. And actually, that represents a little bit of a derating from the kind of 12-month average of 4%. But it is broadly in line with its kind of fellow uh, investment trusts are Aberdeen Asian focused and Scottish Oriental smaller companies. So I think we discussed both of those last week, funnily enough. I think they both had some results out. Asia Dragon sits in the kind of Asia Pacific X Japan subsector. So alongside such names such as Pacific Assets, uh, Pacific Horizon, Schroeder Asia Total Return and Schroeder Asia Pacific. Asia Dragon, I've got on about a 10% discount between about 9 and 10. And that's just slightly wider than the average we've seen over the previous 12 months but a little bit wider than the peer group average. So the peer group average, probably about 6% or so. And that's a reflection of the fact that you've got Pacific Horizon and Schroeder Asian total return, both trading on small premiums at the moment. Indeed. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some specialist results now. We're going to start with Baker Steel Resources Trust, ticker BSRT. And they produced their annual results for last year, the 31st of December. And obviously, I imagine they've done slightly better than, than they did last year in the months so far this year. But let's hear about their results last year, first of all. 
So the NAV per share actually was up about 1% or so, 1.2% of that compared with a rise of 5% for their benchmark. In share price terms, they did a little bit better, up 3.4% as their discount narrows slightly. But this is a very specialist fund. It focuses on unlisted and and more specialist companies in the resources sector. So very, very different portfolio uh, from, say, BlackRock World Mining or something of that nature. They've got about 20, 22 holdings, or they did at the end of 2021. And the top 10 represents about 93% of the portfolio. So it's very, very stock specific. And, uh, you know, unsurprising, some of the holdings performed well and others uh, performed less well. But they made the point that they were unlikely to make any new investments until the second half of this year, as basically their cash is tied up in lockup periods through some of the current investments. So they had about 18% in quoted holdings at the end of 2021. Right. So actually, when I look at the numbers, they actually haven't done that much better this year. Is that because of the NAV or because of the share price or the discount moving? I mean, they've uh, you would have thought in the current climate they would do quite well, but uh, maybe that's not the case. Well, I've, I've got them in share price terms about uh, down about 3% year to date. I mean, there's, there's quite a few moving parts here. I mean, they will have some direct indirect exposure to Russia. I haven't got the number in front of me now, but my recollection was about 5% or so. It's certainly one stage earlier this year. Um, so that might be a little bit problematic for them at the moment. But it, it is very kind of stock specific. So, again, for people looking to kind of play the rise in the commodity space, then there are more appropriate vehicles than, than this one, I think it's fair to say. Right. But it has, to be fair, also it has done pretty well over the last uh, couple of years since the pandemic. It's up quite a lot, having done not much over the previous uh, two or three years there's very specific specialised trust, as you say. Let's move on and talk about Menharden Resource Efficiency, ticker MHN. Also has the word efficiency in its name, no doubt for a good reason. They've had some annual results for the year to the 31st of December 2021. That's right, in which time they saw their NAV total return up 17.3%, uh, and that compared with a rise of 10.5% for what they call their primary performance comparator, which is RPI+. plus. In share price terms, uh, not quite as good as the NAV, actually up 13.1% as the discount widened from 25% to 28%. So again, a little bit of an unusual vehicle, this one. It invests in businesses that are delivering or benefiting from efficient use of energy and resources. Um, The quoted equity portfolio represented about 88% of net assets at the end of 2021. And that saw a kind of total return of about 25% over the year. The private investment portfolio, uh, which represented the remainder of the NAV, that was a little more muted. That was up about 9%. But if you look at the portfolio, I mean, 18 holdings, uh, the top 10 represent about 96%. But Alphabet, that's about 27% of the portfolio. Microsoft, 12%. And Charter Communications, which is a US cable operator, that represented about 17%. So it's quite lumpy at the top end. Well, it certainly is. I mean, it's a funny way in a way if your two largest investments take up half the portfolio are Alphabet and Microsoft. It's an interesting way to describe them as, uh, you know, to, to have your name as uh, resource efficiency. So there isn't really much direct comparison with the energy efficiency trusts we were talking about earlier, uh, which have a different geographic focus, I think, in one or two cases. But uh, is it is it really comparable? And in any case, how is this one trading? Uh, presumably, it's on quite a big discount, as you say. Yeah, it's on a very big discount. It's on about a 29% discount at the moment. It's got a market cap of about £82 million. But again, quite a concentrated shareholder base the last time I looked at this one. So I suspect the free float is quite limited. Yeah. 
Okay, let's move on to talk about another old favourite of ours to talk about, Schroeder UK Public Private, ticker SUPP, formerly known as Woodford Patient Capital. It's now managed by Schroeders, who took on the rump, if you like, of uh, Woodford Patient Capital and have been trying to turn it round ever since. Uh, they recently made the first of their new investments. But uh, tell us what their annual results for last year looked like. Well, yes, I think the answer is kind of mixed, actually. I mean, in NAV terms, very strong, up 37%. And the NAV was just north of 48p at the end of 2021. Share price terms, not as good, up about 6.8% in 2021. And there's quite a few moving parts here. So uh, as you mentioned, Schroders took on this portfolio, um, I'm going to say December 2019, so they've been quite busy over the intervening couple of years in repositioning the portfolio. We could see a lot of that activity last year. So the things that moved the NAV, we saw the IPO of Oxford Nanopore Technologies, and they made in 2021 a gain of £105 million in that time. They also sold a number of their key holdings as well. There was another IPO of a company called Immunicore as well. But realizations totaled 166 million. So what that meant is that the investment trust could reduce its gearing or bank debt, we got reduced down from about 32% at the start of the year, down to 0.7% by the end of the year. So basically, they de-geared the vehicle. But a couple of holdings didn't work out quite so well for them, a company called Rutherford Health and Autolus Therapeutics. They were detractors. But you're right, that the investment team, uh, so it's Tim Creed and, and Roger Doig now, they are repositioning this portfolio. So they made seven new investments in 2021. That equated to about £52 million. Four were in private equity names and three in public investments. But at the end of 2021, Oxford Nanopore represented about 37% of the investment portfolio. So quite a significant chunk. Why is that proven problematic? Well, Oxford Nanopore is down about 49% year to date in 2022. So that has been a significant headwind and one of the reasons why uh, Shredder UK Public Private has struggled a bit this year. But the board made a, a couple of comments. They're looking at initiatives to narrow the fund's discount, and it's on quite a significant discount. And they're talking about the possible use of buybacks. And also they're looking to remove the, the geographic restrictions. So at launch, the intention was, uh, as perhaps the name even now reflects, to kind of focus on UK businesses. There's always been a, a, an element of overseas holdings in there. But the idea was very much to provide funding for UK kind of growth businesses. Um, they want to remove that particular restriction on the basis that Schroeder's obviously has got a very much a kind of global footprint and they want to take advantage of that. But at the end of 2021, it was a relatively concentrated portfolio, 35 holdings, of which 24 were private and 11 quoted. Yeah, so it's been a sort of long and uh, sort of tough journey for Schroeder since they took it on. I mean, the share price at the moment is not that much higher than it was at the sort of low point that it got when it was Woodford Patient Capital Trust after the dramas that went on there. So it's been a long haul, and I guess uh, there'll be some disappointment uh, at Schroeder that it hasn't. They haven't been able to at least get the support in the market. I suppose the discount has been disappointing, and um, in retrospect, when Oxford Nanopore did its IPO, with hindsight, maybe they should have sold some of the more of that at the time. Maybe that would be uh, would have been helpful. But um, what do you think? What's the outlook from here? I mean, I guess they've done a pretty good job on the whole in terms of slowly moving the portfolio around, but the shareholders have yet to see the full benefits of that. It's certainly fair to say that, I think. Yeah, I mean, with a share price, I've got about 25, 26p at the moment. It's hard to argue against that. I mean, just on the point of Oxford Nanopore, I mean, what you tend to see in general with IPOs, private companies coming to the market, is that those holders, when they were still private, 
are locked in for an initial period. Occasionally, you can see that they can sell a number of shares at the point of the IPO, but quite often they're subject to six, nine, 12 month lockups. So it wouldn't be a surprise if that was the case in this particular instance. But you're right. I mean, since Schroeder's have taken responsibility for this one, I think the NAV is down about 30% and the share price is down about 26%. So there's been an awful lot of work to do in order to kind of turn this portfolio around. I mean, I'm sure that the team at Schroeder's would argue that they've done a lot of the hard yards and it's really where they go from here. I mean, they've clearly got a vision in terms of what this portfolio will look like. And they've made it clear that they want to kind of move away from those very early stage venture growth companies to slightly more mature companies. They want to reduce the emphasis on, on healthcare, which was a big theme when they when they took this portfolio off. And it still is a big theme, to be fair. But I think the, the kind of message from the investment team is they're still very positive on the outlook. But it's trading on a 34% discount at the moment. As I say, it's about a 25p share price, and we're estimating about 38, 39p NEV. Yeah, this proved to be a long haul. Let's move on then and talk about ECOFIN US Renewables Infrastructure, ticker RNEW, which is a relatively new arrival in the alternative asset renewable energy space. They've produced their first annual results, and uh, let's see how they got on. Yeah, that's right. So this is basically the annual results for 2021, in which time they saw an NAV total return, or since IPO at least, of 3%. Uh, just to remind people, they raised $125 million at that IPO. Uh, and the NAV per share is just coming at 98.9 cents. So US denominated stock. But they've got their net IPO proceeds fully committed. So we we're talking earlier about the Quilla Fund. In the case of the Ecofin Fund, they've got that money to work. And that's a 155 megawatt portfolio. That includes 61 solar and some wind assets as well, of which 59 are operational. So during the 2021 period, the total generation came in uh, about 2% or so above budget, uh, which is obviously quite encouraging. The total generated revenue came in at $6.1 million. And again, that was ahead of budget due to the higher than expected cash distributions from their wind assets, particularly in the final quarter of last year. So what does that all mean to shareholders? Well, they've paid a net dividend of 1.8 cents. And also they're looking at a 3.2 cents dividend, which they've declared for the year as well. So that exceeds the target dividend yield of between 2 to 3% in that initial period. So all in all, making progress. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about and possibly compare in terms of yield and so rating and so on to RM Infrastructure Income, ticker RMII. Tell us about this one. Yeah, again, these were annual results for last year. Uh, in that time, they saw an NAV total return of 7.6% in a kind of share price total return is even stronger, actually up 16.7%. They declared a, a total dividend of 6.5p in respect of that year, and that was fully covered by earnings. But quite an interesting portfolio, this one. So it's basically infrastructure debt. So it's a bit different from what the Ecofin Fund is doing. And actually, it's changed its spot. So it's moved into the infrastructure space. Um, it's got a kind of focus on kind of social and environmental infrastructure projects. It's about 75% skewed to social, 25% to environmental. So uh, the portfolio of about $131 million that was invested across 34 loans and about 51% in total is, is invested in those social and environmental infrastructure sectors as well. They've also got about 25-26% invested in partially government-backed coronavirus business interruption loan schemes as well and recovery loan schemes, which sounds quite exciting. 
Uh, and apparently they're about 80% government covered. So they obviously saw that as an interesting opportunity. But um, they have taken some provisions. I think there's about a £4 million provision against some of the watch list loans. So it's the old story with debt. You've got to very much just watch the provisioning levels as well. Indeed. But just for the record then, they're not directly comparable. And that's a useful reminder that infrastructure covers quite a wide range of uh, different types of animal. Uh, But if you were investing for income in either of these two, what kind of yields would you be getting on them? So perhaps unsurprisingly, that RM infrastructure income, that's got a higher yield on a historic basis. So uh, I mentioned 6.5p. That equates on the current share price to about a 7% yield. Uh, The Ecofin US Renewables Infrastructure Fund, that's still in its kind of ramp up phase. So that yield is about 3.5% at the moment, but that would be for its initial year. One would expect with the progress of time, they would look to increase that dividend up. Okay, so we can move on then. And we've got a number of property investment trusts to cover. Let's kick off with Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI. So these were annual results for last year. In that time, they saw their NAV per share of about 7.5% or so. In NAV total return in euros, they were up about 12.4% in sterling. And this reflects the whole currency moves in sterling. NAV total return was up 5.4%, although the sterling share price came in at 12.4%. So you pay your money, takes your choice on that one. The portfolio was valued at 661 million euros at the end of 2021. That was up from 425 at the end of 2020. And that reflected, I mean, they did raise some money during 2021. So they made some new acquisitions, but also reflected yield compression as well. So basically, the existing portfolio was valued upwards. In fact, on a like-for-like basis, the portfolio value increased by 9.1%. But they've been quite busy. They've been acquiring new warehouses. So 10 warehouses acquired in the period, and they were valued at 274 million euros. But in terms of the revenue return per share, that came in at four and a half euro cents, uh, and they have paid dividends of 5.64 euro cents uh, in respect of the financial year, and that was in line with the target. It's also worth noting that 100% of the rent due for the financial year was collected, and 70% of income is subject to full indexation. Okay, so this kind of trust is one that's probably uh, more directly comparable there. It's obviously got a European focus to some of the UK logistics trusts. Let's talk about AEWUK REIT, ticker AEWU, which has uh, been one of the better performing uh, commercial property trusts in terms of its rating, at least. Uh, Tell us what they've had to say. Yeah, so this was a quarterly update. So these are the kind of results of the numbers for three months to the end of March. During that time, we saw an NAV total return of 7.4%. So their property portfolio was valued at £240 million at the end of March. Uh, So the like-for-like valuation increase was about 4.7%, and that reflected the office segment of the portfolio and also the industrial sectors as well. So for each quarter since March 2020, rent collection has come in at over 98%. So they've been particularly efficient historically, at least over the last few years, at collecting their rent. For the rental quarter commencing the 25th of March, uh, they already stand about 87% of rent collected or expected to be received. So in terms of their earnings per share, well, they were uh, down in the quarter from 1.8 to 1.55, although they're expected to return to target level of about 2p per quarter uh, once they've made a sale of a property in Glasgow that completes later this year. And they've also declared a quarterly dividend of 2p per share. And that, again, was in line with target. 
Okay, well, we'll compare the ratings and so on uh, when we finish the others. Let's move on and talk about BMO Commercial Property Trust, ticker BCPT, which had annual results. Uh, and we're also going to compare those. Uh, we have some more news from uh, BMO Real Estate Investments, uh, ticker BREI as well in a moment. But let's start off with BMO Commercial Property Trust. Yep, so these were annual results for last year. Their NAV total return came in at 18.9%. In share price terms, though, uh, a lot stronger. The share price total return came in at 37.8% as the discount narrowed from 32% to 22%. So again, not uncommon in the UK commercial property space, but that whole kind of recovery play that we saw in 2021. They've also repurchased some of their shares, about £45 million worth uh, in the second half of the year. But the investment managers uh, have been busy during 2021 in repositioning the portfolio. So they disposed of about £200 million worth of property. Uh, They made acquisitions uh, worth probably about £66 million or so. And this was very much part of the strategy to adjust the sector weightings. So what does this mean? Well, industrial and logistics, the weighting to those two areas increased from about 19% to 31%. The current investment policy allows investment in this sector to up to 40%, but the the board is proposing to remove that just to ensure some flexibility. It also saw gearing kind of drop to about 14% or so net gearing at the end of 2021. It's always worth keeping an eye on rent collection. And since the onset of the pandemic, that's come in about 94% or so. And certainly that dividend cover for the financial year uh, stood at 122% on a cash basis. And in fact, the monthly dividend rate, and it's worth noting with BMO commercial property that they actually pay a monthly dividend, which is relatively unusual across the whole investment company space. But they've increased it to 0.4%, or they will do with effect from May 2022. So they've stepped that dividend up. It's not quite at the, the pre-pandemic levels, but it's kind of it's getting there. The other thing to note is that there's been a change to the, the investment team. So Matthew Howard, who's the deputy fund manager, he's going to step down. And that reflects his appointment to a new role as the lead manager of BMO Real Estate Investments. And that's all going to happen in July. And the final point to note, probably as we've discussed before, that uh, BMO's EMEA asset management business has been acquired by Columbia Threadneedle Investments. And as a result of that, this one's name will be changed to the Balanced Commercial Property Trust in the near future. Indeed. So we'll have to get used to a new name for this one. This one's been around, I think, since about 2005 or something like that. And then uh, there's also another board change at uh, BMO Real Estate Investments. You might as well just uh, tick that off as well. Yeah, that's right. So as I mentioned, Matthew Howard's going to kind of step across and he will succeed Peter Lowe as the fund's lead manager with effect from the 19th of July. So the other change to note with BMO Real Estate Investments is that the chairman was initially going to stand down from the board later this year. But because we've seen this change of the lead manager and also another senior director has retired, the chair is going to stay on for a bit longer to ensure a smooth transition and provide a degree of continuity. So then let's just look at these three trusts we mentioned, uh, AEWUK, BMO Commercial Property and BMO Real Estate Investments. And uh, I think it's fair to say that I think BMO Commercial Property has actually been the best performer in share price terms uh, over the last year or so, when I looked at the figures anyway. But of course, it's had a lot of ground to make up because it was particularly badly hit during the pandemic. So how do these three uh, compare? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair comment. So BMO Commercial Property, I've got it on about a 15% discount or so at the moment. AEW UK, that's on an 11% 
premium. That's been a, probably one of the most highly rated kind of mainstream UK commercial property funds. And that's probably a reflection of the fact that it performed pretty well during the pandemic. And I, my recollection is it didn't cut its dividend at all. So I think it was one of the few that preserved its dividend level. BMO real estate investments, I've got on a 20% discount. And actually, the two BMO funds have a very similar kind of yield, just uh, below 4% or so on a historic basis. Though it's worth noting that given that BMO commercial property, the decision to increase their monthly dividend level, that kind of pushes them up into a notional 4 plus percent uh, dividend yield on an ongoing basis. But meanwhile, I mean, AEW UK also uh, has a, an attractive yield as well, a better yield than those two, I think. No, that's sorry, I should have mentioned that. So they stand on about a 6.4% dividend yield on a historic basis at the moment. So yes, and that is one of the higher, not the highest, but one of the higher yielding funds in the UK commercial property sector. So those uh, investors who uh, took the advice of certain broking firms, I can't mention their names, obviously, but uh, to buy some of these large uh, traditional UK commercial property trusts that had suffered heavily during the pandemic because of their broad exposure and the fact they had to hack their dividends down. That was a good call a year ago. But do you think there's anything further to go in this sector? I mean, are there, you're still seeing people asking, at least inquiring about these trusts and whether they're still good value at, uh, on these discounts? Well, I think there's a few things to consider here and to kind of cover them off. Are we likely to see further dividend increases moving forward? And obviously, we just talked about what BMO commercial property are looking to do to their monthly dividend. Uh, And I suspect most people would assume that there's probably a bit more to go for in terms of those dividends. Some have already kind of rebased or rebuilt their dividends to the kind of pre-pandemic levels. Others are still a little bit behind. So that's one thing to consider. I think the other thing is as well is in terms of the sensitivity to uh, the economy. So one of the reasons why UK commercial property got hit so hard during the initial onset of the pandemic, as at that time, obviously, when economic activity really ceased for a period of time, that that hit commercial property hard. But equally, when we see the kind of reopening as, as the economy rebuilds, in theory, at least, commercial property should benefit from that. But it's very much dependent on the areas that you're exposed to. So BMO commercial property, as I've mentioned, is kind of repositioning its portfolio. So putting more into industrials and logistics, and that certainly seems to be a favoured area of the marketplace. But in addition to that, it still has quite a substantial exposure to retail, which has not been over the last few years the place necessary to be. But there will be some people who argue actually that there's more to, to go for with retail, particularly in the case of BMO commercial property, given their exposure to Oxford Street properties, which, again, if we see this economic pickup, they should be a beneficiary of that. We have to go back quite a long way to the period when um, BMO Commercial Property Trust, for example, was actually trading close to par. Uh, that hasn't been the case for quite a few years now. I mean, even before the pandemic, it was, I think, trading at a discount. So we're not necessarily expected these broad commercial property trusts to start trading at uh, the premiums that you're seeing in some of these specialist property companies, uh, you know, the warehouse companies and logistics and so on. So they're a bit late to that party, effectively. But is it impossible to see them back trading uh, around par or even at a premium? Yeah, it's a good point. So, I mean, clearly there still is strong demand for the more specialist kind of property plays, the kind of more generalists, such as BMO commercial property, UK commercial property, I think we talked about last week, seem to have been out of favour for the last few years. But, you know, these are large uh, liquid vehicles. Um, they do have long track record of dividends. And I think that's an important part of the story. I think for you know many investors, they would see that the yield, the dividends that these portfolios can throw off, has been fundamentally uh, attractive. 
And also, I think a lot of the investment teams in this space would argue that they can add value, increasingly add value to their portfolios. You talk to Jason Bagley at Aberdeen, who's responsible for the Standard Life Investments Property Income Fund, for instance, and he will talk about the measures, the activities that they're taking, not least with an eye to ESG as well, and that they believe that that kind of activity will generate uh, additional value. I mean, the other argument here is inflation as well. And again, I think we talked about this before, about how uh, the income that these vehicles receive uh, has an inflation linkage. It's not, certainly not perfect. It's a time lag and it's subject to kind of caps and collars. So it's not as if you've got a perfect match. But again, in a kind of higher inflation environment, it's not an unreasonable expectation that property should benefit over the long term. Indeed. And they also, of course, have gearing as well. But presumably, uh, most of their debt is now on a fixed rate, is it? Or I mean, are they going to be able to lock in some uh, some low interest rates if we do see go into a rising uh, interest rate environment? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, it will vary, obviously, across the piece, but many of them will have taken advantage of, of very cheap money over recent years or a number of years, frankly, and uh, you know, put some long-term financing in place. I mean, property is an illiquid long-term asset class by definition, so it's very well suited to a listed close-ended fund, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, obviously, there have been some quite well-known instances in the open-ended space where they've had to gate commercial property funds from time to time at moments of stress. And, you know, there's been any number of those over the last 10, 12 years. Whereas obviously with the listed close-ending funds focused on commercial property, they've kept trading. You might not particularly appreciate the discount levels, the share price levels, but at least there was always a way that you could take advantage of that. Indeed. So that brings us to the end this week. Next week, we'll be back to a full trading week and uh, we will have more days of announcements to talk about. But it's been another interesting week uh, for the reasons we've mentioned. And we all look forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.